want you to know I plan on being a star. A big, bright, shining star. That's what I want. That's what I'm gonna get. You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, I want to be in business with you, Ed. Really? What do you think? I'd love it. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. You know, I just want to name, I want it so we can cut glass, you know, like raise a shark. When I close my eyes, I see this thing, it's like this big sign, and the name is in like bright blue neon lights with like purple outline, it says Dirk Diggler. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Jack Horner has found something special in newcomer Dirk Diggler. It's another stellar sexual standout from Horner and Company. Diggler delivers a performance worth a thousand hard hands. His presence when dressed is powerful and demanding. demanding. When stripped to the bone, Diggler's more eruptive than a volcano on a bad day. As part of our throwback series, today we'll be looking at Boogie Nights, starring Mark Wahlberg, Burt Reynolds, Julianne Moore, Heather Graham, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Don Cheadle, and John C. Riley. Directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Easy to predict that after only two films, that Diggler's success can only grow and 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 grow. This is the best work we've ever done. It's a real film, Jack. It feels good. You made it fly. This is a film I want them to remember me by. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Did you ever see that film, Star Wars? People say I look like Han Solo. It's Gally in Glasgow. Uh, that's very good. And uh, down here in London, uh, a man of simple pleasures, like uh, butter in my ass and lollipops in my mouth, it's Devlin. <laughs> oh, you won that battle. <laughs> I try. How's it going, my man? Yeah, looking forward to this one. Uh, and today it's it's Boogie Nights, your choice. Uh, our usual question, uh, why Boogie Nights? Why now? Well, this is this, there's two answers to this question. The first one, and probably the most important one, due to the sudden death of Burt Reynolds it felt like it was fitting that we would do Boogie Nights. Secondly uh, as far as a personal reason and why this is part of the throwback series for us is that this along with a few other films in the mid to late 90s were really responsible for me wanting to go to film school, wanting to be uh, you know be a, a part of the filmmaking process that the director Paul Thomas Anderson felt like felt like me uh, so in 1997, I thought I could aspire to be a Paul Thomas Anderson. And it was the same with Quentin Tarantino, same with Steven Soderbergh. That was, that was the reason why Boogie Nights was, uh, was so important to me as a youngster. So I'm looking forward to reassessing it and exploring those themes and seeing if it still holds up today. Nice. What about um, you, Devlin? What, what, was, what did Boogie Nights mean to you in 97? Uh, well, I was actually that was going to be my uh, my other question to you is did you see this um, did you see this early did you see it 
what, late 90s? Yeah, I saw this. Well, it was before uh, I went to film schools, but it was probably 2000, 2001. I saw Boogie Nights. I didn't see it in 97, but it was part of that whole kind of collection of films that were just... At that point, I'd, I'd switched from just watching Arnie films and Van Damme films, and and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. But I was starting to become selective and a little bit more interested in those behind the camera. Mm. So I was more interested in the filmmakers and what they were doing as opposed to what was on the screen per se. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's less surface level and more, right, trying to understand the craft of filmmaking yeah. and how storytelling and what what makes these stories interesting and why they were successes and that all came from really reservoir dogs and pulp fiction right now, those two films they they changed yeah they changed the whole industry they say it about star wars and i think we can say it about pulp fiction there were there were films before pulp fiction and there were films after pulp fiction and i think boogie nights fits somewhere somewhere in in the middle of that so that that's why that's when I saw it, and that's why I was drawn to it. Okay. And I did watch it po- pre-film school, but yep. post-film school, um, I got a real appreciation for the director, Paul Thomas Anderson. Absolutely. What about you? Cool. Um, well, I came to it uh, a little later than that. Um, I would have been uh, I would have been like sixth form college, um, and I came, I saw Boogie Nights after I'd seen Magnolia. No, I, I, I rented it from the blockbuster video in, in Darlington because I'd, I'd heard about this thing. And um, I became a bit obsessed with with Magnolia first. I'd heard of Boogie Nights, and I guess, which is another thing we, we talked about when we talked about looking at Boogie Nights, is that um, it's a difficult, uh, a difficult recommendation. So Boogie Nights doesn't, I guess at the time, didn't strike me as something that I would have been particularly interested in, probably because it was a period piece in the 70s probably because I thought it was going to be a bit drier or tackier than it ended up being. So um, it was after, I, after I'd seen Magnolia, I went back and, and watched Boogie Nights. And um, like you, I was uh, very quickly a, a Paul Thomas Anderson acolyte. It was around the time that I started um, thinking about film in the same way that I, started, that I used to think about or still think about music. Films used to just be these, these things that came out of nowhere. They came out of Hollywood and it was, they were just sort of deposited on your lap or on the cinema and you went and saw them and they were made by, you know, distant adults. And, and yeah, this was uh, a, a similar thing. You felt a kind of kinship. Probably my, my main in on, on that uh, era of indie filmmaking was Kevin Smith because it was the most accessible you could possibly get. Like I used to work in the spa shop in Herworth <laughs> and uh so, so you did rent out some videos. Yeah. Well, we used to, yeah, we were the video <laughs> shop. We used to have like 20, yeah, 20 yeah. films in the back in a cupboard and, uh, you know, people would just rent them. So the thought that somebody could just kind of in a, in a similarly crappy little town working in a similarly crappy little convenience store could just scrape together some cash and an idea and, and a, and a film emerges. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, Magnol- and that was the beauty, right? Yeah, I mean, that surely was the beauty of, like, that era. Magnolia and Boogie Nights were were clearly such massive, uh, kind of monumental achievements that that didn't feel accessible to me. But it certainly felt like something that you could aspire to do. But this is this is the first film that we've done in our series where we've got a 
a writer director in Paul Thomas Anderson who's who's, mm. who's producing this film. You know, he's yeah. written it, he's directed it. He's 27 years old when he directs this, which is insane. And that was that was one of the things about the the 90s, the mid to late 90s was there was this whole new wave of these independent filmmakers mm. that were that were like you said, they were we were able they were attainable to people like yeah. us. Yeah, we aspire obviously, to be, obviously insanely to be talented, but yeah, you yes, could... yes, that we, we there is a there's a part of the formula that I I I missed out, which is the <laughs> uh, the little talent uh, icon. But yeah, they felt like okay, they've gone out and they've just written something, they scraped together what little money they could, and these weren't like silver spoon filmmakers. No. They were, I mean, in Paul Thomas Anderson's case, and we'll maybe get into it. Um, there's a little bit of family lineage within the industry. But it's low level. Yeah. It's not like he's Kubrick's son yeah. or, you know, it's not like Coppola's son. You know, this is slightly different. So it felt like for people like us who wanted to, you know, go to film school, learn about the craft and then make make a career of this. They were real inspirations. And, and that was one of the one of the reasons why Boogie Nights was on my list, because it was one of those films during that period that really did get the you know get the creative juices going for me there's nothing stopping me from doing that and i don't yeah. know in 2018 if that's the case it probably it's probably easier now with youtube and with the ability you mm-hmm. know with, with the equipment that's available you know you can knock up you can make films but oh, yeah, whether definitely. or not you know whether or not the studio system allows for filmmakers like a paul thomas anderson to make a boogie nights in 2018 maybe maybe not i don't know i mean I, what do you yeah, think? I think the the chances of of this level of crossover success, I think, are wildly diminished. Mm. Um, I mean, talent often will out eventually. Um, it's not to say that there aren't you know really good young filmmakers coming through. There's been a bunch of films that I've seen lately which are, um, which you know were by young and unheralded filmmakers, and they've they've at least got to the point where they're out there in the in in front of people and and they've got their defenders but and boogie nights was it was a big a, a surprisingly big crossover hit if you wanted to lump together the kind of i always put paul thomas anderson and, and wes anderson and tarantino just a couple of years ahead of them i always think of those as like a bit of a cohort and yes and they've kind of crossed over into the public consciousness in ways that uh later filmmakers haven't really been able to and i think they were just there at the right moment but they've also evolved yeah but they're all very distinctive as well like they yeah very 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 distinctive they came out swinging with a with a look i mean um i guess you'd say that uh like bottle rocket wes anderson's first was him kind of playing like he it's a it's a fun film but he hasn't quite solidified what he was doing, but by the time he hits uh, Rushmore, which is only two years later, basically the entire Wes Anderson aesthetic is is locked in, and he's just been refining it and deepening it ever since. But you know, they've, yeah, they've all progressed. Like Paul Thomas Anderson's later stuff is, he's he's moved on a great deal exactly. from from Boogie Nights. But uh, and we'll go back, I'm sure, during the throwback series, and we'll do a Rushmore. We'll mm. we'll do a Reservoir Dogs and a Pulp Fiction because there's, it's inescapable. Those are films that are, that yeah. form part of our our sort of heritage as as film lovers. Uh, they're yep. all they're part of that. 
Um, but in, in Paul Thomas Anderson's case, when I said he's evolved, and this isn't a knock on Tarantino, this is more of Paul Thomas Anderson in Boogie Nights, Paul Thomas Anderson in, say, Inherent Vice or The Master. Yeah, he's evolved The Master as a especially. Is, uh... Yeah, he's evolved as a filmmaker massively. Yeah, And one of the things that's interesting going back and watching this film is... And this is where their relationship. So we, I keep, I'll keep mentioning Tarantino and Anderson, and it's because they've got a bit of a friendly rivalry going on. And they've they've mentioned this mm. in interviews before, where both have have kind of driven the other to to start you know, pushing the envelope and doing something different. Uh, you know, like I said, Tarantino was a few years ahead of him, but the influences are there in Boogie Nights from Pulp Fiction, and then it kind of goes back and forth, back and forth. But yeah. where I think Tarantino's kind of always stuck to type, Anderson has evolved as a writer and as a as a director behind the camera. And in Boogie yeah. Nights, his influences are quite they're quite apparent. Um he's not he's not stealing from other filmmakers, but he's hugely influenced and he's using yeah. filmic techniques. You know, Robert Altman, Jonathan Demme, who we talked about. Uh, in Science of the Lambs, with her, with the steady cam shots, the one the long takes, and the other one, massively, is Martin Scorsese, and yeah. in particular, Goodfellas, uh, I think is is a big influence on this film. But unfairly, yeah. I think it get I think Boogie Nights gets kind of lumped into a clone of of Goodfellas, and I and I wholeheartedly disagree with that. Yeah, there's a lot of of, and not just aesthetically. I think there's there's a lot of of Goodfellas, which has kind of imprinted itself. But you know how you, we were saying that uh, for both of us, I would say P.T. Anderson was was a big reason in in why we wanted to go off and and study and start making films. Um, what is interesting, I guess, is that he and Tarantino. Um, even though they made us want to go to film school, they were the kind of quintessential film school dropouts, right? They, yeah, they yeah. they got their education by by watching videos. They were kind of the the first generation which was raised on VHS, who would be able to just sit and obsessively watch and rewatch and rewatch um, films from wherever. And when you talk about like, the kind of the influences of uh, on both filmmakers being so apparent, that's what they do. They, they kind of, um, especially at that age, when they were younger, they were absorbing and then synthesizing something new out of, um, Paul Thomas Anderson's influences were probably more kind of second, kind of most of the second half of 20th century American cinema. And then Tarantino cast his net out into like foreign exploitation cinema uh, especially like Hong Kong and Japanese action movies and stuff. And from that, they kind of created something new out of old cloth. And a lot of Scorsese played into both of them. So, Devlin, shall we get into it? Yeah. Would you like to hear a summary of the film? Yeah, let's uh, let's recap, uh, recap the plot for those for whom it's been a while. In San Fernando Valley in 1977, teenage busboy Eddie Adams, played by Mark Wahlberg, gets discovered by porn director Jack Horner, played by Burt Reynolds, who transforms him into adult film sensation Dirk Diggler. Dirk is brought into a supportive circle of friends, 
including Amber Waves, played by Julianne Moore, and Roller Girl, played by Heather Graham. But a lethal mixture of drugs and ego brings our rising star to a crashing fall. That's pretty much it. It is a classic rise and fall tale, not too dissimilar to a Goodfellas uh, Mm -hmm. in that respect. It's always drugs. Um, and I'm just trying to think of like other films in the '90s that had similar, um, similar kind of plots, and I, and I was actually struggling to think other than Goodfellas, but there are a few. I think was it um, The Doors with Val Kilmer? Uh, yes, that, that would have been that, rise that, that would have been a few years before, but yeah, certainly in the '90s, right? That would have been. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. still haven't seen it. My only reference point for that is uh, Wayne's World Two. <laughs> <laughs> you think it was unnecessary to see the crack in the Indian's bottom? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so fucking lowbrow. Every time you try and bring up something Oscar winning, I tell you about the absolute schlock that I actually remember. Indeed, indeed. Oh, God. Right, well, shall we? let's get into it then. Yeah. So, the opening the opening shot. Mm. I mean, we, we talk about uh, the Scorsese influence. And and there it is, front and center. Although before we get there, there's uh, a, a sequence which I'd completely forgotten about. There's um, we have the the credits just playing out, uh, just small white text on a completely black screen with um, with just that really really sad piece of score music, uh, Michael Penn score music. It's um, interesting, right? It is. Well, um, thematically, I'm going to get straight into thematically, which is irritating no let's Um, do it man let's do it i so as we said we were a little obsessive about paul thomas anderson back in our earlier days and there's there's bits and pieces that i remember i I used to watch kind of all the making of documentaries and i would listen to his commentary tracks or try and seek out stuff that he'd that he'd um that he'd write about his own films and um uh there was somewhere in my mind is this uh this little piece of information that apparently he and Michael Penn decided that they wanted the the music, the score music that they came up with, to have a slightly circus feel to it. just kind of projecting i was assuming it's because um the the sort of family that jack gathers around himself is quite comparable to how we see the the old circus which is that it's you know it's people who've dropped out of society and created a little society for themselves outside of the mainstream and it's also populated by waifs and strays and runaways you know people run away to the circus which is kind of what eddie does you know what that's um i never thought about it that way Uh, i i had it down as that it was uh sort of foreboding uh the darker tone and the shift that the story Mm. will take but what's weird because the that piece of music um that piece of music comes back uh in the last scene when um Yes, well, that was it. I thought it, it kind of completed the yeah. circle. Um, 
But no... Uh, I might be completely wrong. That's though. pretty good, Devlin. No, no, I think that's pretty good. Um, but once we once we come from that, that really unique music and that uh, sort of black, empty space, we are into a really, really strong opening. Yes. And, and we've not really talked about it um, as far as just films in general, but I'm going to say it now for Boogie Nights because it's a really good example. Uh, in every story and in every film, you need a really strong opening. Um, something that's going to draw you in, something that's going to give you a sense that you're in, you're in good hands. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And, and Boogie Nights does that. It's a crane shot that moves into Steadicam. We, we won't get into the whole technical side of things, but all I will say, and maybe we will do a little bit as we go through the characters. I think in this but case, just, it's, it's just fair. The, Yeah, just the sheer amount of effort mm. and time and technical ability. And it, this needs to be so tightly scripted, not just uh, on the page, but everything it's it's like a dance it's like yeah, everything needs the to hit, to hit their mark yeah it's choreographed to the nth degree yeah. because we're dealing with a camera that needs to rack focus the whole time mm-hmm. so it is it is wonderful it is so so beautifully well done there's um actually because i i literally just uh just a few minutes ago just wanted to like i wanted to run that shot again because i just wanted to i wanted to nail down exactly what i did and um it, it turns out that the Boogie Nights thing is on the uh, awning of a cinema opposite the nightclub, which, if anything, makes oh. that shot more insane because it's not oh, even in the it. same that's building. Incredible. It's across the street. So he's got two completely... There's a, the Reseda Cinema, and then it's got Boogie Nights on the awning, and it says now showing, and then the camera comes completely all the way across the street to the nightclub, which is called Hot Tracks. <laughs> You're right. It is called Hot Tracks. That isn't. It is insane, though, right? It's such a yeah. So I mean, you start. He's across the street. A cynic could say this is a young director Mm. kind of showing off, but I'm going to argue that every long tracking shot that Anderson employs in this film is motivated by character. Yeah, it's for us as the audience, and this opening is essentially an invitation into this world. You know, we start from outside the club. The doors open. The doorman's there. We're behind Jack, Amber, and Maurice, and they let us into this world. And it is just fantastic. You are immediately, with the music and this tracking shot that goes on forever and a day, he's able to tell pretty much all the key characters in the film, almost all of them. And then he uses another scene later on to, to introduce the other ones that are not in this particular opening. So we get that. But then we're also given just little nuggets of character Straight away. Yeah. And we don't even realize it's happening. And that's what's so magic about it. It's uh, it's so, so, so good. And the the comparisons with the Coco Cabana Club in Goodfellas, yeah, absolutely. But we we discussed it, I think, uh, when we uh, off off uh, off the microphones and we were in talking about Altman's Nash- Nashville. Yes, in our real lives. And we talked about Altman, uh, Altman's Nashville. Yeah. Demi does it in Silence of the Lambs. If it's motivated, if the camera is motivated and it's telling you something about the characters or it's doing something about the story or it's something to do with the themes, then by all means, Anderson, show off. Yeah, I'm sure there is a certain amount of kind of like 
any pursuit where people are kind of at the top of their game, there's going to be a certain amount of like pissing contests. But it's that whole, but it's that whole thing about being the opening shot. Yeah, you need something that's going to be like, wow, what is this? Mm-hmm. You know, if it if this was shot conventionally with just three three camera setups all the way through, and we were cutting through, you lose the ebb and the flow with the music. Yeah. But also we are we are in a he's trying to set up the seventies or this particular period of the seventies, so nineteen seventy seven in San Fernando Valley, the porn industry, it's it's at its almost its height of its power. Yeah. And everything is working at this point. So we wanna you know, yeah, the fact that we are absorbed uh, in like... and we kind of just float down into this world, it's just magical. Yeah. You're immediately you're immediately engaged and just following all these different characters. And it's yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's really, 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 really strong. Opening. And like you say, it's a it's an aesthetic that he he introduces and then he he manages to keep it up, which is which is great. It's it's not that it's one absurd show off sequence in a in a film that is is otherwise quite drab. It's it's leading you into what the rest of the film is going to be like. It's uh, it's, absolutely. It's cool. So should we should we get into the characters? Yeah. So the main ones in this opening. Um let's talk about Burt Reynolds, Jack Horner first. Mm-hmm. It's it's quite sad now reading about reading the interviews, uh the the commentaries, interviews with the director, interviews with Burt Reynolds before he passed. Yeah. Um at the time Boogie Nights was released, he pretty much disowned it. He had scuffles with PT Anderson on the set. I thought that he disrespected him. Didn't really want to do the film. Thought it was lurid. Thought it was crass. Basically, thought it was shit. Yeah. Um, and the, the irony is, I don't think he's. I don't think he's ever been been better in a film. I think he's so so good. Certainly at not since his since his legitimate heydays. Certainly not since those kind of no no and this charm thing. personified performances he was putting in in the seventies. And it's it's more nuanced than the stuff he was doing in the seventies as well. Exactly, exactly. You know, he's just coming off uh, Striptease, which was a complete and utter <laughs> catastrophe and bomb. Um, and then he's somehow got it in his mind that this film is beneath him mm. and actually the subject matter is really crass and he doesn't want to get involved in it. And you think, well, a year earlier, you were in Striptease yeah. talking about titties. Oh, it's, it's possible that this was a, a hangover of that. Maybe he was he was taking flack for being in Striptease and then thought that he's got himself into it again. He was nominated for an Academy Award for yeah. this. And he, he pretty much sabotaged himself. Yeah. You know, with his with his public outcry against the Academy, but also against this film. Uh, he essentially did himself out of an Oscar win. Mm-hmm. And people forget, when people think like Burt Reynolds, there's loads of jokes about the moustache, smoking the bandit, all that kind of yeah. stuff. He was the biggest superstar in Hollywood for about six years from sort of the early 70s to just the start of the 80s. Burt Reynolds was it. You know, he had a string of successful films, some of them good, some Mm -hmm. of them bad. You know, Longest Yard. um, I mean, Deliverance is the... It was was between Boogie Nights and Deliverance as far as how are we going to do a... an episode in his, in his honor and and sort of dedicated to Burt Reynolds. Yeah. It was it was a flip between the two, and I went with Boogie Nights. It's probably but, for the best. I've, I've never yeah, seen he... Deliverance. <laughs> well, we 
this we've we've managed to do a lot of controversial stuff uh, in the first few episodes. So Boogie Nights is controversial, and we'll get into yeah. why it is. But Deliverance goes to another level. So yeah, it, it's just he people forget that they forget how much of a superstar he was, and a bit like and again I'll, I'll stop with the comparisons, but a bit like Travolta in Pulp Fiction. This for Burt Reynolds is like a chance to to come back. Yeah, totally. And people really, really just went, wow, I haven't seen Burt Reynolds in a good film in a long, long time. I watched Cop and a Half. It was terrible. <laughs> this is great. And one of the reasons why I'm going to say he's great, because instead of just uh, giving him, you know, luring him with loads of praise, um, this opening, once we've done the opening shot yeah. and we've introduced uh, Burt sat at the table with Amber and Dirk as the bus boy. Which is um, the first we'll, we'll go into in the film. Which is great. Yeah, it's the first edit, right? One of the things he does really, really well, which is on the written page, you can imagine this, and especially in 2018, this might seem a little bit creepy. But he is basically going into the back where Eddie Adams at this point, Mark Wahlberg, is like washing pots and, and doing the dishes and whatever. And he's kind of got this like grin. It could be really sinister. But the way he delivers his lines and his kind of affable charm and sweet centered softness in his line delivery means that we never feel like he's a threat. We feel straight away this warm feeling towards Jack Horner, that this is someone we can trust. When actually, what he's propositioning is pretty pretty dodgy. My name is Jack. Eddie, Eddie Adams. Eddie Adams from Torrance. Yep. Jack Warner, filmmaker. Really? Yeah. I make uh, adult films, exotic pictures. Oh, I know who you are. I read about you in a magazine. Inside Amber, Amanda's ride. You made those, right? Right. Those are great. So now you know I'm not full of doggy doo doo. <laughs> yeah. Want to come back to the table and, uh, you know, have a drink? Yeah. I mean, if, if, we're, if we just want to throw out there, like, one of the. the well, basically the central theme of the film, because we may as well. It's not like it's a secret. Yeah, it's the, it's um let's get the genie out of the bottle. It's it's that, you know, Jack has has constructed this family this family unit and it's it's more functional than Eddie's biological family unit and we're supposed to root for him to to join them. You know, he 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 finally feels kind of nurtured, but it's it's a fucked up family unit based on exploitation. Exactly, yeah. And he exploits those people. Yeah. And we see that directly in the film. But at no point are we really against Jack. Yeah. It's it's such a it's such a it's a weird thing because in any other in any other guys with maybe another actor, this could all be horribly go horribly, horribly wrong. Yes. And be really quite creepy. I don't know what the Freudian implications are in Anderson's writing, but there's, yeah. there's, there's definitely some weird stuff going on uh, in his mind when it comes down to maybe his personal experiences with his family. I don't know. It would have been an interesting premiere with his mum and his dad watching this. I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, we've, um, I guess, just in general, we've we've talked about this idea that um, first films or early films, usually debuts, but usually, often maybe a couple of films into people's career, um, they tend to get that, that itch to do the, um, the, the coming of age, the, the quasi autobiographical coming of age story. 
mm. some of them are more direct. So Cameron Crowe, for example, is what his second film as a as a director, being almost famous, which is completely based on his own teenage years. Um, yeah. Whereas what we have here is um, and this is where Paul Thomas Anderson grew up. So he grew up in the San Fernando Valley. So he was. This is a autobiographical in in place and in time periods because he would have been a kid in the 70s so this is his recollections but yeah it's it's maybe this is a just an, an interesting way for him to be able to exercise some of those kind of growing pains and and demons but to do so in a way that's uh in the framework of a of a, a proper story a fictional story well a fictional story which has huge elements lifted from the real life story of John Holmes. Um, so yeah, maybe it's a way for, for him to, to kind of scratch that itch without indulging in telling his own story. But I mean, if you look at the importance of um, family relations in every film he's made um, and especially father figures, it's uh yes it's all it, it always seems to be that right although in this one i would argue that the mothers in the film take take a take more of the hits than the father figures there's a there's a there's a, there's a weird there's a weird dichotomy going on yeah. between this and, and magnolia because in magnolia uh pt anderson's next film it really is fathers that he's that he's kind of going at it's still families he's that's still his larger theme yeah. but it's but it's very much father figures that he's going for you know more simply put you write what you know right well, so he's he, this is his second film you just write what you know uh so he's he's been brought up in this world in san fernando valley in and amongst all these kind of porn yeah. what is his um his dad he, was, knows, um, he knows this industry yeah. his dad was an announcer for for uh tv like uh you know like the the studio i guess like the i don't know whether he was the kind of warm-up guy or whether he was just the the announcer but you know you have the in like live television back in the back in the day in the states you would have somebody kind of you know that like the saturday night live voice guy live from yeah, new york yeah, of course yeah so uh he was one of those but apparently before that he used to be some kind of um legendary late night horror movie host back in cleveland like a regional horror movie host like the um, like the guy from Gremlins, yeah, like too. the guy from Gremlins too, or uh, or uh, uh, <laughs> from Fright Night, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I'd love to be, one yeah. Um, so he grew up around like uh, showbiz, but on the fringes of like comedy showbiz. Um, so, but I've I've heard him talk about in in relation to this film that like the house next door is grandma's house. They used to make everyone kind of knew they were making porn films in there. Um, so yeah, it was, it was probably something that, that fascinated him. Well, and the the wonderful thing about families is, and we know this from our our own lives, is it's inherently dramatic. No yeah. matter what you do, you know, you you go to a family wedding, there will be drama. Yeah. So and, and as every, a as a story, it's the great leveler. You, there's so many things that you can explore, yeah. right? There's just so many avenues you can go into when it comes down to family yeah. and everyone's got one exactly. so you can it's, it's there's something greater or lesser to. degrees of dysfunction it's, there is 
if you know you either have like the the tight familial unit or you have the absence of that but it's still something that kind of hangs over you yeah he's 27 years old what else is he going to talk yeah. about i mean I, i'm only drawing from my own experiences when we were in film school like what did i really have to write about and that's why every student film is always about drugs or guns yeah it's something because external. All you've ever done is watch films about yeah. drugs and guns, but you've never actually lived it. So that's why they're always shit. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of speaking of young mm-hmm. talent, Mark Marky yeah. Mark, he was the Funky Bunch. Um, so I listened to some of his oh, music. Yeah. Uh, that's morning. a weird thing to do, but uh, yeah. Oh wow, it's really bad, isn't it? Um... I can see why that's been like yeah, buried. It's terrible. I'd seen him, and this is not before I saw Boogie Nights, but mm-hmm. I then saw one of his earlier roles, which was in the yes. Basketball Diaries, which interestingly enough, P.T. Anderson actually wanted Leonardo DiCaprio to play yeah. Dirk Diggler, which would have been a whole different film uh, than the one we get. Better or worse, I don't know. It would be definitely fascinating. But Leo goes off and makes Titanic. And... DiCaprio is the one who recommends Mark Wahlberg for the role. And yeah. Yeah. This is this is the film that you know, this is the one that propels him into into light. Uh, kind of meta in a way, and it's one of the it's one of the things that I um I'm not sure that Mark Wahlberg's ever been as good as he is in this film. Like genuinely. And one of the reasons I think is because because he's so new to the game. Yeah. He's asked to do quite a lot, and he's got to do yeah. things that I don't think a young rising star would normally agree to do. He's essentially lampooning himself, which credit to him at the time. And it's actually a little bit sad, Devlin, because I went and um, I read an in- a recent interview on his press yeah. tour for Daddy Daycare Fucking 2, where he was actually saying that he's got some regrets, and one of them is Boogie Nights. And I just think, Mate, you need, you need a bit of a reality check. Like, if you're regretting this film, seriously, you need to look yeah. at your, the, the. That's why I was. That's why I was going to say this. I would be regretting far, far yeah. greater sins than Boogie Nights. And actually, you should be giving this film all the credit it deserves because you wouldn't have a career, I don't think, without this movie. In Wahlberg's case, it's because uh, he's uh, uh, super Catholic. He became more and more super Catholic in in life, and he uh yeah he, he apologized to a a, a cardinal oh, for having starred in this film. I think he just found he just found a, a passing cardinal and apologized <laughs> for being in Boogie Nights. Yeah, because the cardinal watched it right, yeah. apparently. Which oh, he definitely watched. Which it, which. Well, exactly. It's which which is an interesting one because he doesn't seem to apologize for being in like horrifically violent and morally repugnant films about, you know, murdering foreign people on behalf of patriotism, etc. This is a really, and you mentioned it right at the beginning, this is a really hard film to kind of not recommend to somebody, but you know when you're trying to sell it, and I'm only going to grow on uh, a couple of weeks ago yeah. when, I, when we knew we were going to do Boogie Nights, and uh, my girlfriend had never seen it, and I said, we're going to review this film on the podcast, uh, you know, watch it with me. And she's like, oh, what's it about? And I, and I said, it's about, it's basically like a rise and fall story uh, in the backdrop of the porn industry in the late 70s. And she just went, oh, I don't want to watch that. <laughs> that was that was her immediate response was, 
why would yeah. I want to watch that? And what's interesting is that that is that is the reaction yeah. I think that most people would have if they didn't know anything about the film. You were trying to pitch it. They're just going to go, well, why do I want to watch a bunch of people yeah. who are in a in a porn film? Because it's got all these negative connotations throughout it. But if you were to flip it and say yeah. it's about this uh, it's about this guy who's uh, entering the mob and he rises up and it's like a rise and fall story within the mafia and he ends up ratting them out, i.e. Goodfellas. I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. I wouldn't mind watching that. It's yeah. such a strange thing, right? It's nuts, isn't it? It's nuts that to think like, and the the, the connotations are there that you don't. <laughs> rise through the ranks of organized crime without a doing shit loads of organized crime and b one of those crimes be a murder your 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 lead actor your lead character your protagonist will murder somebody in a mob movie well uh, i don't Just, think henry Hill actually does kill anyone in um in goodfellas i don't think he's, he directly kills anybody oh yeah he blows up some cars yeah, yeah no one's in the cars and he does some uh I don't think that Henry Hill, by the way, is uh, is uh, sinless. By the way, now that's just the depiction in the film. Also, I mean, you've, you've got to remember that this is based on a on a book which he himself wrote about himself. And unlike certain panelists from <laughs> BBC Two quiz shows, most people don't admit to murders in their no, own no, exactly. Well, very very nice reference there, by the way, Devs. But yeah, the Thanks. so isn't it strange? But is it just? And this is we're gonna we're not veering away from the film, but we're talking about the the greater context of the film. Is it just yeah. our societal like phobia of sex? That means that we don't ever want to really talk about it. We don't really want to see it, even though we know everyone does it, because they must do, especially in like places like Portsmouth, where people are just banging them out. Especially in Portsmouth. <laughs> but, but yeah, everyone's having sex. We know that pe- yeah. we know that people have got kinky sex. People have got crazy, weird sex. People have got the normal, just missionary two slugs having sex. It, everyone does it for some. But for some, yeah, normal normal slugs. Slugs. But for some reason, we don't <laughs> want to really talk about yeah. it, and and it's kind of like it's all behind closed curtains, and, so, and certainly don't want to engage with it in a in a kind of. I mean, this is a playful film in in some ways, especially the way it engages with the sex industry in the first half. It engages with it as a. It's 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 a kind of joyful. Oh yeah, the first hour. I mean, it's all joy, right? It's all joy. It's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, you've got these little inflections um, of kind of hints at consequences, but really, really, we're on the ride. Yeah, you know, they, we're loving they, it. It's kind of it's kind of fascinating that I, I think um, a lot of that is the fact that our film. Um, you have to think: what is it that that kind of informs what we do and don't expect to see in a film? And for the most part, it's. Our films come from America. Is have we? We've only yeah. We haven't done a foreign film yet. American films and one and one weird, one weirdo Italian. Oh no! Film. Technically, yeah, we have done a foreign uh, film. Although it's an, a, a well, foreign film, very much made it's for an American, entirely uh, or a Western audience. So it's um, well, it, it's 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 yeah, it's Italian cinema. Um, but that was that was kind of a uh, a bit of an anomaly, really, because the the bulk of our films that we watch the bulk of our films that would be in our personal kind of filmographies that play in, in our head, the ones that kind of informed what we see as a film, they're American films and American film 
is by and large informed by what you can and can't get away with in American yeah. cinema. And the MPAA, which rates films there, is terrified of sex and is totally fine with but, violence. But this is what I don't understand, is that, so Boogie Nights, and we'll get into some of the, I wouldn't even say they're sexy scenes, but just the scenes where they are, you know, it's explicit and it's it's full frontal, it's right in front of yeah. you, it's on camera. It's so not sexy, yet... There are there are films yeah. that don't even have sex scenes in it, but are designed purely for titillation, purely to just get your rocks off. You know, there's there's films where there it's it's questionable where they'll have questionable female or male characters that are in there of probably just above age, so to speak. Even music videos, but for some reason, like I said, I'll go back to my uh, my girlfriend's initial response, which is I don't want to watch that. I just don't want to see. Uh, I don't want to watch a film about porn industry. Well, I don't want to watch that. And I just think it's because we've got these sort of negative social connotations towards it, and those types of people. Yeah. And actually, I'll draw us back into the film uh, from this conversation. But this is what Anderson does so so well, and I'm going to keep going on about it. Is that he doesn't judge these characters. So these are they're in the porn industry. Mm. We've already talked about how that's normally seen as a negative, a, a perceived negative, but he doesn't judge them. The camera never judges these characters. Within the film, they are judged by uh, other characters, but the filmmaker is telling us that we don't like these people that judge our characters. Yep. And it's just, it's really, really wonderful to have that kind of, that balance where they're not negatively seen for what they do and we're judging them on their actions. And it's just, it's really smart. Yeah. It's really clever writing. And I wish more films nowadays would, would do that. So it wasn't so black and white. Oh, these are good guys. These are bad guys. Actually, we've just got these fleshed out characters. And you make what you will of yeah. them. And you, you make your judgments based on their actions, what they say, what they do, as opposed to this person's a lawyer. You know, they all, that was the old thing. If they're a lawyer, it's like, oh, <laughs> lawyers, terrible. Um, but actually, no. What kind of person are they? Can I relate to them? Is there something human? Yeah. Is there something that I can relate to them uh, on with? Sorry, on a human level, is there something? And that's what yeah. for me, Eddie Adams slash Dirt Diggler is. He is, and this is where Mark Wahlberg's performance is so great, is that because he's so mm. raw as an actor, he just throws himself into this role, and he's not. He doesn't care about how he's going to be perceived outside of the film. He's, he's totally committed to this role. And he's essentially, he's essentially me and you when we were going to film school. I'm not saying I had a 13-inch dick, because I didn't. <laughs> he, is, he, he wants to become a star. So we've, we've had the major intro, and then mm-hmm. we, get our, we got our first hint that all's not rosy when uh, Amber's on... Uh, played by Julianne Moore, and we'll just let's just talk uh, briefly about Julianne Moore in this film. She is yeah. so good, and she's got like the reputation now as like if you want someone to play a damaged person, you get Julianne Moore. You know, she's this yeah. Magnolia. I mean, even I wouldn't say she's damaged, but even in like the Big Lebowski, she's fucking nuts. So <laughs> she can play crazy True. and unhinged like no one else, but she is so, so good in this. And 
the first thing I'd seen her in was Assassins yeah. with Antonio Banderas and um, Sly. Because she's like the computer nerd in that. Uh, yeah. Um, that came up That came up before. Assassins seems to come up quite a lot. Yeah, we talked about Assassins. I don't know where we talked about it. I think it might have been Science of the Labs or some random... I think I was, I was trying to... Oh, no, I wanted you to wanted tell, to, I wanted you to talk were, about Eric Roberts because I always want to talk about Eric Roberts. Yeah, you, you mistook Assassins for the yeah. Specialist. And I was like, no, that Specialist is when Sly gets his ass out. Assassins, mm. he does not. But yeah, so she's she's, I mean, she's a wonderful character. She's previously worked she's so with uh, Altman before this. She was in Shortcuts a few years yes, before. Um, yes, she was. Before this one. Um, I'm trying to think of like other things that I've that I've seen her in that, that I really like. Do you remember, um, I can't remember the dude's name at all. Uh, oh, Todd Haynes. There's the very there's the early yes, Todd yes. Haynes film that she's in uh, called Safe, where she mm-hmm, yeah she develops like an allergy to basically everything. What 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 she's really really good at is like internalizing sadness. Yeah, like it's in her eyes. But throughout this film, she's she's probably the most tragic character because uh, she puts in a front up everything's okay she's smiling she's in you know even even later on when she's encouraging eddie to come into the car yeah. and be part of jack's kind of proposition to to join them you can see it in her eyes that she's she's almost doing a back and forth in her head like say no mm. you know? that it's just it's she's so so good and this you can get so many different reads from her facial expressions yeah. and uh yeah it's just, it's a shame that she's sort of not that she's dropped off. I know she's got a film coming out later this year, but that she's not, she's not up there. You know, I think it's just a thing with females as they get older in Hollywood. They, you know, their roles start to diminish until they get to a certain age when it's like, well, it's Maggie Smith and Julianne Moore yeah. or Helen Mirren. They can play that. It's so been a she's, while, she's in it? that middle period. Um, yeah, I haven't seen her in like a real. Perfect. You know, what, I, what was really sad is I saw it in the Carrie. Like superfluous Carrie remake oh, really? in like 2013, and she played the mother, uh, and she was great in it. But the film itself was just rubbish yeah. and and kind of not worth her time. And and I just it it made me sad that that's where that's where she is yeah. at the minute. But we set her up in that that conversation when she's speaking to her uh, her ex husband. She wants to speak to her son, and she's great in that. And at the same time, we come to William H Macy, who plays Little Bill. And he is he is another tragic character, but his yeah. his story um, is so pivotal to this film because he is oh. like symbolizes the the change in mood and 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 kind of his death is almost the death of the porn industry. It happened at the same time. <laughs> Should we talk about if we talk about the scene because it's so so funny, but just like all good tragedies, it's also hilarious. The first two Little Bill scenes are, are both hilarious. The second, I think, even more so than the first. But, um, but yeah, we, we, we have the yet another of these kind of beautiful, slow, drifting dolly shot through the house following Little Bill as he, as he comes. It's the first time we've met Little Bill. We've met all of the other major players in the in the club, right? Know. No, we saw him. No, we, yeah, we, no, we, Little Bill was in the club. Yeah, he's the one who's like, have we got a script? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. He, yes, he's the, he's the cut from the from the uh, ah, you're right, shot yeah. To the next yeah. long. So, oh, shot. so he interrupts the flow. That's quite interesting because you've got this kind of 
Yeah, it's Everyone interesting. Everyone else right? is in it's... is in motion, and then suddenly he comes in, and then that's he's the one who's talking yeah, about the that's film. That's when you get the cut. So we know that he's he's all about yeah. the work, and then when he comes home, his uh, his wife, played by a real porn star actress, and I've forgotten her name. I apologize. She's just like banging some dude, but in the most casual <laughs> way. And even though it's funny, let's let's go into. I mean, it's 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 his face, right? He's got this yeah. wonderful face, and it, he's done Fargo, right? At this point, uh, so yep. he is Mister Go To for these sort of pathetic, emasculated characters that have just been stripped of all their all their manly kind yeah. of. Yeah, all the all the tools that make somebody he is, he is number one. He, he symbolizes what it's not yeah. to be, and uh, and that and I think that's what she's doing, right? She's like banging this dude, and she gives him such a yeah. look. She's like, it, she's almost like baiting him to say, "Well, why don't you be a man and kick this guy's yeah. ass?" But instead, he just sort of accepts it. <laughs> and I think that's what couch. I think that's what it is. Yeah, just go. But I love the way it's like... Uh, Buddy, can you close, you close the door? The door? <laughs> well, I closed the door. That's <laughs> my wife, you <laughs> asshole. And then he's just, the guy's just like, oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. But I think that's what it is. That's what she's doing. You know, she's lost such respect for him. And she's just trying to goad him. Like, come on, say something, do something, be a man. And yep. he doesn't, and he just sleeps on the couch. And then we, we, you know, we're seeing all these different family homes. So that we've just mm-hmm. seen little Bills completely dysfunctional. Um, Jack's kind of functioning, uh, yeah. normal, but he goes for a drink. And then Eddie goes home, and this is where we get all the characterization that we really need for yeah. Eddie. He's got all these posters on the wall, and just like a teenager, mm-hmm. I did this. I uh, can't. I did it. it bloody university as well. Just like get all these posters that tell everyone yeah. what I'm all about, as opposed to just being a rounded person. I don't know what I want to be, so I'll just put posters on well, the you wall know, of you, things you, that I like. You feel like you're, and, but yeah, it's you exactly have to project your, your character there because your character's still forming. So you kind of it's uh and it's it's a a really kind of important reminder at this stage that this is a child. Yes, yeah. he's seventeen. Between that. When he gets home, which is mental, and the next morning when uh, when he's eating breakfast and his hair's all brushed down over his face and he's wearing like the ringer t-shirt, it's like he's a he's a child. <laughs> yeah, uh, what I also like about that um, that sort of slow pan around the room is, and he he does this throughout the film is Anderson teases the cock, yeah, and we just we glimpse it. <laughs> Behind the he's jeans, doing, we can see the, he's doing the, his the size in it, and it's it's fucking yeah. it's brilliant, isn't it? It's such a it's again, it's such a, a smart choice to just withhold that and a nice little um nice little nice little soundtrack uh, transition as well, because you know we've had little Bill's uh, Jack and Amber coming home, and little Bill coming home is kind of sad Michael Penn music. It's all very depressing, and then yeah, mm-hmm. as soon as we start swirling around Eddie's room to catch him in his mirror, it's uh. I assume it's a, a song because I've heard that that key, that key yeah no, like, it is yeah, yeah. like a crazy yeah. up tempo Hammond organ solo or whatever. Um, it's very Doors yeah. actually. It's kind of the it might I, mean, I don't know who it is, but it might be the Doors. Um, but then we then we come to this what on the surface appears to be a normal functioning family. You know, sat uh, sat at breakfast. What I find interesting is the the choice uh, of the shot to 
to go into the room. It's almost like Anderson is is taking the POV of the father, yeah. sort of just just slowly. You know, we don't want to don't want to disturb mom as she's doing the washing up, and he sort of just creeps into the yep. room, and that's what the camera's doing, and it's great. It's really really good. She's fantastic. Yeah. She's got like two two scenes. The way she the way she, she just snaps and it. turns on him, so yeah. fast. I, this is this is such good stuff because we don't need to know any more than those two scenes of her yeah. and to understand the backstory and where Eddie's coming from. There is some stuff to maybe unpack with regards to what it really all means and why she's so so mean and cruel and domineering. But a bit like little Bill, she's she's the one who's got all the power in this relationship. There's no balance between yeah. the two of them. And Eddie's sort of so passive and gentle about it. He He just sort of ignores it. But what's telling is he says see you later dad but he doesn't say see you later mom and it's just interesting this is where i said before magnolia is about fathers and this one feels about yeah it's all about family but uh the emphasis is on is on mothers then we're introduced well we we've already met um don Cheadle at this point mm. and with with one line he's he's yelled to uh Luis guzman about i'm a cow i'm a what cowboy think, what, what do you think of this <laughs> i'm a cowboy <laughs> but so don Cheadle's character buck He's so he's really interesting mm. because of all the characters in the film who are porn stars, he's the one that we don't ever see actually have sex yeah. on film. In fact, we don't even that we see him with his top off. Um, and he's referred to as this great actor. Like people, I think Jack says, he's a hell of an actor. Yeah. And um, really, what all Book wants to do is is almost conform. I guess it's it's a strange one. He just wants to be able to sell stereos and he thinks that that's what he wants to do but he's also literally and metaphorically like the black sheep of the family he doesn't really fit in does he he's not he's not reed rock's child who's one of the actors one of the go-to actors that jack yeah enlists he's just there and he's struggling he's got no identity he's he's just picking and choosing trying on identities it's it's another (laughs) the, the great thing is and I guess that's why they're all treated with such empathy. They're all so naive, up to and including Jack, even though Jack is the kind of the the patriarch of this family and he's the the one with, you know, the vision and the plan, but his vision is so naive. Yeah, he he, he thinks that he can make films forever. Yeah. And he thinks that people are interested in in a film, in a porn film, after they've come. Yeah, that's his dream, that's his vision. Yeah, but he wants them to sit in it and... <laughs> and so to to see you know to see buck trying on persona after persona just to try on these looks and to get so touchy about it and to get so defensive and yeah they're they're all kind of sweet like reed and yeah i said i said tragic but i think they're all kind of tragic i mean that's what makes them such compelling characters to to watch and that's because secretly i can see parts of my character and my personality and all of these uh and all these people you know in book it's it is that teenage thing of not quite knowing what person what persona what identity you want to have yeah um and then later on in the film his his arc is so important in contrast to all the other characters you know he's the one who ends up getting everything he wants yeah but what he wants is so normal compared to 
what Dirk wants, which is to be a star, and what yeah. Reed wants, which is to be well, he's to be a magician, to be a rock star. You know, they all want to be. You know, Jack wants to be this auteur filmmaker. They're yeah. all like reaching for the stars. Book just wants to own a stereo <laughs> store and sell super 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 stereos at super low prices. And and the bit where he gets called out by his boss is like the first time we see that judgment. Yeah, and then we see Roller Girl go through the same thing she's at school again so eddie's eddie's young mm-hmm. how old's roller girl like i'm i'm not privy to know the american education system uh, well, high, high school ends at 18 so 17 18 so she, 17 18 yeah so again jack should be creepy as fuck yep. but <laughs> but when whenever they venture out of the little the circus whenever they venture out of the bubble within the bubble they're the coolest gang and they all understand each other and they all look out for each other. And any time they venture outside of their little bubble, they're misunderstood, they're judged. I guess in a lot of ways, that's why not just um, visually and in terms of the soundtrack choices and in terms of the, the the technical aspects, but I think that's that's another way that it's like Goodfellas, right? It's like yeah, no, absolutely. watching somebody be admitted into this secret cool gang. It just so happens that in one case, it's organized crime, and in the other, it's uh, making sex films. And then we get Jack and his first exploitation of Roller Girl. Whispers in her ear. Yes. She goes off. She finds... In that incredible um, floor-level cam shot, following her skates through to the back. And we've not talked about the, um, the soundtrack. P.T. Anderson's got an ear for music and visuals yeah just like tarantino just like scorsese he's able to he's able to find the right track also uh i was thinking also like um uh dazed and confused as well. oh yeah big time big time it's just same era really needle drop yeah they're needle drops right but they 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 feel natural it doesn't feel like a filmmaker saying Mm -hmm. isn't this a really cool song it's the song is really cool because it fits within the story and it's also telling us something about yeah. the story. It's setting the mood. It's it's working in conjunction with the visuals. I was going to say to an extent, um, oftentimes films like this, especially like a, a throwback era of films, I guess nostalgic filmmaking, usually the nostalgia cycle is about 20 years. That's what they say, mm-hmm. right? So here in the, in the late 90s, you're looking back at the late 70s. Um, oftentimes like... These songs might have been forgotten, largely forgotten, kind of buried. And they're super familiar to us because it's like films like this recontextualize them and give them a second life. Like if you go to any terrible um, student nightclub, I assume if you still do, obviously I'm not going to terrible student nightclubs, but certainly when we went to terrible student nights, like the really shit ones, at some point in the night, everyone would do a big sing along to build me up Buttercup. Yep, yep. Guarantee that's only on these things because of there's something about Mary. Absolutely. Nobody cares about that song as a song, but it's been dug up, recontextualized in a beloved film. So I think a lot of these disco hits were probably, you know, dead and buried. But then we go to quite a still scene, and it's an important one. I wanted to talk about it. And it's the first time that Jack really invites Eddie into his inner circle, his family. And it's the diner scene. And they're sat like father and mother, opposite brother and sister, son and daughter. So Roller Girl and Eddie Adams are sat opposite Jack and Amber. And what I really love is the 
the subtle stuff that Heather Graham's doing, where she's just sort of a bit bored. I think she starts <laughs> like messing with a straw because she's probably heard this this pitch a million times. You know, that's 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 the impression. But as she's doing that, yeah. and Amber gives him the um, you know, the the here we go again kind of. Yeah, yeah, she gives him the here the, we go again, slightly embarrassed indulgence and. But as he's talking about, and, and they, they're demystifying this whole porn industry thing. He's talking about, the, you got the editing, you got the sound, yeah. you know, you got you someone to make it look good. Dollars. And he's just talking about the process. He's not actually talking about like banging. He's just talking about, these are the things you've got to do. Uh, yeah. And then he starts talking about his desire, which is to make the film uh, that people stick around for as they sit in their love, <laughs> their joy juice. Um, after they come but what I really like uh-huh. is this is where Julianne Moore is like just dazzling in this scene because there's a real inherent sadness but there's also a an attraction to Eddie and this is where I get yeah. into this the kind of the Freudian stuff I don't, I'm not sure what P.T. Anderson is really trying to say but there's an unmotivated camera move where You've got singles on Julianne Moore, and you've got a single on mm. Mark Wahlberg, and then the camera just moves over into empty space, and it's done through like nonverbal communication between the two of them. But you get it right. She wants him yeah. to be her her new son. I'm not sure he's he's quite receiving the same thing. Like I want you to be my mother, but it's done in nonverbal communication, and it's it's fucking yep. brilliant. It's just great. It's really, really strong filmmaking. I can't believe he was twenty-seven, Devlin. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's and that's the thing. Like, um, I think in in terms of of why I mean, you never want to second guess why somebody's. Well, maybe we do second guess why he's written what he's written, but I think um, what's great about how empathetic he is as a writer of characters is that. I don't think that he's trying to work out any weird shit on the film. I think it's just the case that once you set up characters like this and you start kind of creating plots for them and you start seeing how they bounce off each other and and you kind of you get to just sit there and and imagine which characters will go where and who's got what motivations and and I think it 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 just sort of it lends itself to such a fascinating and very weird dynamic between all of them. And like you say, it's, it's, it's so obvious that he's, uh, he's framing them and creating them as if they're a nuclear family. And you'd say that, you know, Reed is like, Reed is the, uh, Reed Rothschild is the knucklehead brother. Yep. Absolutely. You know, that he gets to have the fraternal jousting with that, you know, they're best friends. It's, I, I, I think you mentioned um, John C. Riley's performances being a precursor to another of his performances. Oh, it's Step Brothers. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the same character. It's the same dynamic that they're going for, but this time they're, I mean, they're playing it for laughs in this film, but in Step Brothers, they just, you know, turn it up to 11. That's the only difference. And it's an entire film yeah. based around that, that conceit. Of right, yeah. Bro- what do you what do you brothers, squat? <laughs> brothers that squabble. What do, you, what do you what do you squat? Oh, it's great, isn't <laughs> just, it? It's turning great. the um, turning the mixer on, huh? <laughs> <laughs> what 
Well, should we get to it, Devlin? Should we start barreling through the stories? We talked a yeah. lot about the well, technical um, setup. Yeah. Well, let's let's throw ourselves back uh, into to the. Um, I guess you you mark this out as uh, as a kind of end act one, beginning act two, and it's a it's a it's a very it's a very sharp point. There's a line. There's a, a big underline drawn through the film when he leaves one home and enters the other in the space of an edit. But before he does, he's got you know, his second scene with his mother. Yeah. Oh yeah. Until you know what, we don't want to miss that one. Yeah. It, the way that he has framed it, it almost feels like, and I don't know what you thought again, maybe I'm being weird, but it almost felt mm-hmm. like it was a, it was like a wife receiving their husband who's just been out cheating. Do you know what I mean? Yes. The way that she keeps yeah. referring to this girl, this slutty girl. Hi. Where were you? Nowhere. Shut up. Where were you? You see that little slut girl you see? Cheryl? Cheryl Lynn? Don't say that. Make you feel like a stud to see trash like that? Is she your girlfriend? No, she's not my girl. She's a little whore and a little piece of trash. And I know you're not the only one she sees. What? Why would you say something like that? And I'm trying to think, well, what is motivating the mother to be this Cruel. Yeah, why well, was I was thinking the same? Why I mean, is she being such she, a bitch? You see that she has, uh, she has, you know, alcohol on the on the side table, but but she was um, a bitch in the first scene. So we we've already set yeah. her up as this like prickly character. But then why is she going at Eddie so hard? I mean, it is pretty cruel. And this is where Wahlberg's doing some of his, his best work. It's just like raw it is, acting. Yeah, it's, it's like it's, he's it, this it's is untrained so and. Oh, it, to the point where I was like, it was almost making me well up. As you said, I mean, so we've already got a, a, a very kind of uh, a very twisted and complex uh, mother-son dynamic between Amber and Eddie slash Dirk. Um, do you think there there are hints? There are hints that that's all I could draw from. Devlin. That's all I could go. Has, with, was that yeah. that was what he was going. That that's what he was trying to go for. I'd have to say it, it, it's it's not a, it's not an outrageous. It's not an outrageous theory. No, no, no. I don't think so at all. I mean, outrageous for a, uh, I say, a Hollywood uh, product being released wow, <laughs> as yeah. a major production that wins Academy Awards. Yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little bit out there and it's a little bit strange. But, but no, not as a, not as a. Well, I mean, it's it's a study. It's a theme that he comes back to, uh, in 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 the reverse in Magnolia, where Jimmy Gator's character is hinted to have. Um, abused Melora Waters. Yes, yeah, you're yeah, you're so, right. So maybe it's just, it is, maybe it is the, the inverse so, of that. It's so strange, but this this is very much mm. the cut off. This is very much end it's of. Good, I mean, it's good that they that they leave it kind of weird and ambiguous, but and like you say, it's performed with such with such rawness that she's she's so good as well. It's it's com- it's completely completely believable. I think her name's Joanna Gleason. 
and she's just mm, she was in like um she's been in some she's in Hannah Hannah and her sisters yes and... she is she is in Hannah and her sisters um, and Warburg's just great in this he's just really like I said it's just a raw performance he's just reacting which is very similar yeah. to Basketball Diaries um you know you could see there was there was talent there he, he can act I, I think he's he's almost um he's almost like sort of lampooned and he just seems like he now. needs a like he needs a director yeah you put him with a, with a legitimate filmmaker even somebody who I'm not such a huge, huge fan of, like a David O. Russell. Mm. I mean, I thought I Heart Huckabees was a bit of a mess, but uh, Mark Wahlberg's great in it. But yeah, so we then leave, uh, we leave Eddie. Uh, he's mm-hmm. left. And then we have the, the real attractive, glamorous, isn't this world wonderful pool scene. And there's so yep. much going on. You know, we meet uh, Becky Barnett. She's kind of sidelined in the film in the end. Her story... Yeah. And I've seen the deleted scenes, so she had more to do with it. But for the sake of this episode, we're reviewing the theatrical release, and it and there is no director's cut as such. Um, yeah, there are deleted scenes out there. I mean, this film. Well, was I, like I put in. Uh, I put in my notes when. Yeah, I put in in my notes when I was just making some brief kind of. I just wanted to know who was in the film at what point, and in that opening, um, tracking shot, you you know, I wanted to see who you meet and when. And you meet Reed and you meet Buck and you meet Becky and you meet them all together on the dance floor. And in my notes, literally all I could write is, and Becky is also there. Yeah, she's because I think she is also there. She was a victim of the edit, you know, the film's two hours and 36 minutes. And I think with her stuff and all the other uh, deleted scenes, the film's three hours long. And yeah, it's a tough seller not to get a film with the porn industry yeah. to then be three hours long plus. You know, he, he has that power when it comes down to There Will Be Blood. So Anderson yeah. builds his credibility up to go to that kind of length. But even in 97, they were like, mm, it needs to be below three hours. Yeah. And I guess um, it's it's somewhat understandable and it happens a lot in films where you've got, you've got a young, uh, ridiculously talented, but, but inexperienced filmmaker um and like you say writing what he knows so just via internal probably unconscious bias the writing skews more towards the male characters yeah in yeah. terms of giving them depth giving them agency so yeah but, unfortunately, but he's still a, but he's still able to give um cuz even roller girls kind of pretty slim pickings yeah and and actually on yeah, the page, Heather Graham probably, does a lot probably... to, to give that um, a lot of of pathos, just because she's a very kind of engaging presence. And and I think Julianne Moore brings more to the role than maybe on the page. You, I think you, you yeah. you're probably not wrong there. But then we have the Dirk uh, Reed <laughs> showdown, <laughs> and it's wonderful, right? Because this is this is what brothers are like. Eddie is introduced, and this point he is Eddie. He's introduced as the new guy on the street. So Reed yep. is already a porn star and he already fancies himself as a bit of a, a bit of a Lothario. So he yeah. is th- feeling threatened as anybody would do if someone was brought in some new talent and it'll something that will echo later on when it comes yep. down to Johnny Doe. So Reed just reacts in that way. Because the uh, power... new, new guy on the street, what, did, he, did he say you live on the street? <laughs> no. <laughs> hey, did you ever see that movie Star Wars? Oh, about four times. People tell me I look like Han Solo. Really? What do you bench? Well, you tell first. I asked you first. Same time. That's cool. 
Are you ready? Ready. One, One two, two, three. three. You didn't say anything. Oh, neither did you. Like John C. Riley. Can we just talk about him very, very briefly? Of course, I'll so, always talk about John C. Riley. We'll always talk about him, right? He's so, so good. But he's such an unusual actor, isn't he? Like, he looks weird. He yep. doesn't look like a conventional actor. But his comic timing, like, I, I can only imagine that he has probably improved most of this film. Like, it just yeah. feels like everything is natural that comes out of his mouth. But when you've got someone like Mark Wahlberg in one of his earlier, earlier roles, John C. Riley is this, like, again, another fantastic character actor. He's not a superstar, mm-hmm. not an A-lister. A character actor. Oh, he'd, he'd done a few. To he'd, he'd done Hard Eight, and he's in. Uh, was he in Platoon? Was that the? Uh, no, he was in the one. Oh, was he the Palmer Casualties did. of War? Casualties Maybe? of War. Yeah, That's he's in one. Casualties of War. I get all my eighties, nineties uh, Vietnam. I know that there is. It's all a blur, isn't it? Um, but yeah, so he's really good in this, and he's able to to be a good sort of sounding board for for Mark Wahlberg in the film, and as in a character as well. You know, he becomes doggedly loyal to to yeah. Dirk because he becomes subsumed by his stardom, just like everyone else in the in the film does. Yeah. Uh, so it's just this pool scene sets everything up. We're introduced to the Colonel, who is like the financier of these films, and they keep it nice um, and simple, don't they? It's just like he finances yeah. the film, and I think. Oh, he turns up in a he turns up in a nice car with an absurdly young girl, which of course is disturbing. Later, oh, she, and she looks like a rat. Like she looks horrendous. <laughs> like she needs a good meal. In her. <laughs> it's true. They made her up to look horrendous. I yeah. I there later on. There's another one of of young people being made up to look horrendous. But indeed, her, I didn't indeed. notice. But yeah, when she just turns up and asks, you know, she just any coke at Is this. Is there party? any coke at this party? <laughs> I think we can find you some. <laughs> and then I love the way that um, Maurice, played by uh, Louise. Uh, Louise Guzman. Louise Guzman. Sports Guzman, and apologies. Again, another character just, uh, actor. Yeah. It's just every every time I see him, it's just it's always that Magnolia thing when he's um when he's he's on the team in the what the <laughs> what the kids know. He's like talking about his yeah. speci- my specialist subjects, sports and milk. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way that he's just like constantly throughout the film pestering like yeah. I've got this club, but I but I want to show my brothers back home all the beautiful women yeah. that I've been with. He's so he just fun. wants to be in the film. Uh, I think there's deleted scenes with him uh, oh, in it. Undoubtedly. He's another one of like, if, if he gets I'm kind sure, of cut, I'm sure if you just run a, a camera with Luis Guzman around, you're going to get an hour of solid material out of him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll draw attention to, again, the direction at this point and the film techniques that, that Anderson's employing. We're following all these characters. They're all over the place. And we're just getting these little little snippets of their yeah. conversations. And we go back to Dirk and... Uh, oh, I keep calling him Dirk. He isn't Dirk yet. We go back to Eddie and, and Reed. And they're doing the uh, the front flip. Yeah. <laughs> Reed's it's it's just brilliant, isn't it? It's like, uh, yeah, that was pretty good. But uh, let me just show you where you went wrong. Yeah. It's you know it always reminded like um, it makes me think of like going on holiday when you're a kid like either just preteen or early 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 teens. I don't know if you did the same like um, you know my brother's like 
two years older than me, so I recognize a lot of this nonsense anyway. But um, <laughs> what it reminds me of more is like when you'd go on a on like a family holiday, and you'd go to some wherever resort, Castadel, whatever, um, and your your apartment complex or your hotel would have the 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 pool in it, and there were always a, a couple of other kids around your age, and you just kind of really warily eye them up. And exactly this kind of shit would always be the thing that you would, you know, you'd these little like, oh, do a, you know, do a flip or whatever. And that's why I just feel like these characters are so brilliantly drawn as being so naive. They, they have, they seem to have a mental age of about 13, you know, I, the, the film doesn't feel mean for it. It doesn't no, feel, there's no judgment. That's what I mean. Like it's, it's punching down. The way that, You're right. They're portrayed yeah. as being stupid. The way that he, uh, Anderson frames it, there's reverence for these characters. He yeah. loves them. Yeah. And we love them because they're framed in such a way and they're shot in such a way that, that means that he's not judging them for being naive and stupid. Yeah. But should we talk about Little Bill and his second encounter with it's his wife? It's my favorite. Probably the funny, <laughs> it's probably the funniest bit. And I will 100% insert clip now. My fucking wife has an ass in her cock in the driveway, Kurt. All right? I'm sorry if my thoughts are not on the photography of the film we're shooting tomorrow. Okay? I dare I say the funniest scene in the film. It's just, it's all reactions. Yeah. It might not be. There's, there's, there's so many really strong scenes in the film. But... And just just R- Ricky Ricky Jay and, and William H. Macy <laughs> deadpanning each other. Well, there's just a, a group of shirtless goobers watching his wife get plowed on a driveway. <laughs> I know, and I love the way that she's like, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> and then when he walks off... Oh, and, the way uh, they frame his little cinema. head popping up over their shoulders as well. <laughs> God. And then Kurt, the cameraman's like, uh, you know, well, normally uh, less... What does he say? Like, less light means more photographically. <laughs> yeah. I'm just... Well, I mean, I'm just trying to invest a, a different look, a different look in the, into each individual picture. It's the kind of... Maybe my my mind isn't on the photography of the film. I I love the slip up, and uh, so apparently uh, William H Macy just kept getting the line wrong, where he's like, "My wife's got uh, uh, an ass in her cock," and they just kept it because they were like, "Well, yeah, he's he's all over the place." So, and this is the kind of writing, you know, like we said before about inspiring us. Uh, as as kind of young filmmakers, you just aspire to make stuff like this, where it's fun, but it's also layered. Th- there's so much going on. Yeah. But on the surface, you could just watch this and just enjoy it. You don't even need to do what we're doing, which is sort of dissect these characters yeah. and and try and understand. And it's it's, it's so kinetic just go along and it's so it. restless that it's like everything just kind of just kind of hits, and the way the camera just it'll it'll sweep off and we'll pick up someone else. And we're off again. Yeah, it, it's it's all momentum in these in the in this these first these first parts, and that's that's yeah. again uh, part and parcel of what Anderson's trying to do with regards to mm. where these characters are in the industry. But he's um he's keeping that shadow over proceedings as well. It's not purely sunny. You've still got Amber's son calling and Luis Guzman answering and not being able to work out who I can't remember her real name, mm. Joanna or something. Um, Maggie. Maggie that's and 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 the overdose as well. So yeah, young, young which is which is girl. sort of not played for laughs, but that one line 
It is the, played for laughs. The, the so young when, guy. The, when the guy, when the guy's like, "This is just a time," someone's there uh, on me, and it's yeah. just the the flat. The flat delivery of, well, maybe, uh, maybe you should consider getting some different shit. Huh? Doctor? Did you call him doctor? Oh, you think? Oh, no, that's it. It's like, a, I, think she took, I think she took too much. Oh, you think so, doctor? <laughs> it was like, with all but this the, fucking yeah. conversation. But there is, like, you know, a teenage girl with blood all over her face, passed out on the floor, and they have to smuggle, and they smuggle her out the back door. It just shows, like, you know, it's... it's but this is the difference in the timeline, right? So at this point in the film, at this point in the film, this is all still played. This is We're still fun. We don't want this to um, to get in, in the way of the party. Yeah. And then as she leaves, Philip Seymour Hoffman, the legend, enters... Mm-hmm. What a great entrance. And it's a shame because he kind of, again, a bit like um, a bit like a lot of the sort of more peripheral characters, sort of falls away. But my God, he makes an impression in this film. Yeah. And what was, uh, what was I found interesting is when I watched this film, again, I was thinking, what was the first film I saw Philip Seymour Hoffman in? And it wasn't uh, A Scent of a Woman. It was Twister. And I yes. hated him in Twister because he was the annoying guy who was just like... He just shouted the whole film. Uh, but then, yeah, you go through his In my head, he's also in Dante's was... Peak, but I think it's just that I've smashed so many 90s films together in my No, he's not brain. in Dante's Peak, mate. He's not. No, he's, he's, he's not, not. But there is a, there is a oh, no, right. he's a, he... cha- like storm-chasing kind of character yeah. that he's playing. But it's not, it's not Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's given no, to someone else. But he gets such a really strong entrance. And this is... Boogie Nights is important because... This is really the first film where I think people might have taken real note of him because after this, you know, the dominoes start falling and he really has uh, become like a superstar yeah. that he so deserves to be. But at, the, at this point, all these character actors—they're all just hardworking actors, just grinding through Hollywood, doing bit parts in bloody assassins and twisters. Yeah, you know, and then to see them in this film and then know where they go forward after this. You just forget about those times when you saw them in bit parts, just scrambling away for like you know to put bread on the on the table. It's it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. But what I love and I would draw attention to is um, the costuming on Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. And uh, so I read that the uh, read it from the costume designer that what they wanted to do was Scotty J is a character, hundred percent closet homosexual, mm-hmm. is that he's got this um, he's got like this mind of a child, and in his mind. He's still like 14 and fits into the clothes he was wearing when he was 14. And that's why he's wearing these dead tight clothes. Yeah. Is that he's, he's, he's not mentally grown up. Therefore, they wanted to sort of externalize that by putting him in these clothes that are like the, far the, too the big for him. Or far too small. Yeah. So. Um, a, a great example of um, when we talked before about, you know, where these filmmakers were pulling their influences from. And I, I, I feel like uh, P.T. Anderson his reference points were maybe a little older than some of than some of the others, certainly older than, than a Tarantino that you could tell that he had like a, like a love and affection for kind of classic 1940s, 1950s Hollywood. Um, and that, well, that, and that's what this feels yeah, like. Right? That just, this feels like a, lo- this feels like a love letter almost yeah. to those, to those types of films. Well, it's when you, it's when you, in, in um, this section, you get that, the 70s section. when uh, Scotty walks in, and he sees Dirk, and you get the iris in. You know the, yeah. the screen just kind of shrinks down to a little circle around around Wahlberg's face, 
it's um it's so artificial it's so kind of vicente minelli or whoever you know um and and, and a couple of years after this you know when when pt anderson makes um punch drunk love punch drunk love has has tons of this kind of stuff you know it's it's hugely influenced by old movie musicals even though it's not itself a musical so yeah he's 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 willing to to stretch the boundaries of realism we're not we're not a documentary level here even though it's not um it's not an unreal film it's not a it's it's not stretched to the point where it's like a fantasy he's willing to to throw in you know old hollywood tricks and just put them out there and trust that the audience will will go along with it and what better way to establish this is a character who is now hopelessly madly in love with this character at first mm-hmm. sight then why not i mean it's 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 achieved in 3 seconds it's brilliant and then we get to the the first time that dirk is going to perform mm. And this is really important. One because it's set in Jack's garage, <laughs> which is great because you can see all these you see all these gardening tools in the background, yeah. uh, which is brilliant. Then you've got this like seventies horrible brownish wallpaper, mm-hmm. and then and, and again, this is the whole demystifying the whole, the porn industry yeah. stuff. Like this is normally in a film, this would be this would be titillating, this would be sexy. Yeah. But they're just doing it like it's routine. Like, this is just a job. Well, he's you know? he's, he's think... shot it like a documentary. It's it's handheld. It's it's yeah. it's nervy. Mm-hmm. It's uh, which goes back to the short film that he made when he was a teenager, the Dirk Diggler story, the one that Paul Thomas Anderson made that ended up becoming Boogie Nights was um, was shot as a mockumentary. It was shot like 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 Spinal Tap, you know, a, a backstage mockumentary. Yes. So. It's it's cool that he went back to something that he made when he was seventeen and used some of the same tricks. So, you know, um, yeah, like you say, it, it's demystified. It's the nuts and bolts of, you know, this is this is the shitty room that you've got. We were talking before about mothers and the relationship between Dirk and Amber. This is this is one of those strange things, mm-hmm. right? So the way that this scene plays out is obviously Dirk is now Dirk. He's nervous, but he's, he's you know, this is going to be his first performance. This is also the big reveal for all the other characters to see his big yeah. huge cock. It's played for laughs a little bit at the beginning because they are essentially homage, uh, homaging um, yeah, these types of porn films where the acting is really, really bad. <laughs> The dialogue I'm is really, really, really yeah. Julianne Moore is fucking brilliant when she's just like, I've got a landlord. He's a real <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, it's really, really good. But what, what, uh, what I find fascinating about this scene is the way that it kind of evolves. Mm. So I said before, like, none of the sex scenes in Boogie Nights feels like it's supposed to be titillating, but this particular scene feels intimate. Yeah, exactly. That's the word. That's the word that I'd use for it. Yeah, it goes from like just two characters in a in a porn film to two characters like solidifying their relationship or cementing their relationship, which is is probably a I need to choose my words carefully because he essentially comes in a. But it's yeah. just this this whole idea that it goes from just doing a job to then this intimate scene where and yeah. he does that by getting in close. 
you know, mm-hmm. we go from inside the camera to then he is like in Julianne Moore's face, in Mar yeah. Wahlberg's face, thrust in an awe. But it's not supposed to be sexy like you're getting you're getting yeah. a jobby on. It's it's meant to be that there's a connection between these two two characters. Yeah. And, um, I it's, really got that on this watch, definitely. It's a really um it's a really difficult and a really mature thing to do. There's not many films that can sort of use sex to forward the plot. There are a few, there are a few examples of people who've tried to do it. Um, but uh, I would say maybe like Blue Valentine achieved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, for every Blue Valentine, Devlin, there's as much as I love the Terminator, the sex scene mm-hmm. in the Terminator is really corny and really, yeah. like, it's supposed to be this intimate moment where they share a connection, but it just comes off kind of cheesy. And, uh, and really I'm, not, I'm not sure Jim Cameron's the guy for that. <laughs> no, no, but that's what I mean though. Jim Cameron, great, great filmmaker, great storyteller. This is, he, he doesn't, he doesn't have the sensibilities to do what Anderson does in this yeah. scene. It doesn't mean that one is better than the other. It just means for this kind of material, Anderson is nailing it. And yeah. what I love as well is the reaction shot. <laughs> when they first see Dirk's dick, yeah. like Philip Seymour Hoffman's face, <laughs> if you've not seen this film, we haven't said it yet, but by crikey, watch it. And then I, I challenge you not to laugh at their reactions. It's yeah. in the reactions. And it's building up this anticipation, like we yeah. want to see it. You know, we want to see it. I mean, I, you know, everyone wants I to guess see like, this. Thing. Like a lot of these things, you, you know, it's like uh, it's I don't know. It's like it's like the shark in Jaws, or <laughs> whatever. Whenever you need, it is. To, well, whenever I was going to say, whenever you need Jaws. to be awed by something, don't don't show it. Show us what effect it has. Yeah, it's all about yeah. the reaction shot. So, um, yeah, it's it's, it's a. Gr- it's a great scene, and I'm going to make an argument now. So when uh, when Dirk Diggler says uh, earlier in the film about everyone's got yeah. one special thing, the film implies that it's his 13-inch giant yeah. cock. I am going to say that it's 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 his drive and it's his attitude towards people, mm-hmm. his treatment of people. He's so like open. So in this scene when he comes up, uh, and I think William H Macy says, "Oh, you know, we missed we, the shot. Yeah, we didn't get the shot." And then I love the way he just says, uh, I don't know, maybe we can just uh, go to some stock footage. And Burt Reynolds' reaction, <laughs> don't match! <laughs> but the way that he turns around and just says, I can go again if you want, Jack. And it, that, and to me, that's yeah. his special thing. That's what makes him a star. It's not his 13-inch cock. It's not about having the gear. It's how you use yeah. it. As he's, yeah, he's kind of, he's a magnetic presence that people want to be around, but the fatal flaw of that is that it's it's he's too he's too open he's he's too present yes and that well that'll yeah. be his downfall when we get to it so we've reached the the hour mark we've just run through um a 30 minute sequence just the party and the first scene that Dirk films it takes up 30 minutes of screen time there's only two scenes which is really interesting the, the way he... It's incredible, right? Like you were saying about it's um, these these kind of these guys, and especially this guy, um, the way they construct their narratives is, is, is a cool and very unusual approach. We're not in the, we're not in the realms of traditional 
act structures and stuff, even though you can map character arcs onto it. It's uh, it's a pretty bold move to have two scenes take up 30 minutes of your screen time. But the first hour dabbling flies by. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it like literally flies by. Yeah. And you don't it's feel such it a sugar whatsoever. rush all the way through. Absolutely. Um, and and we, we, we come to, um, after the sex scene, a montage where we basically just, we are given all the information about Dirk's rise. Um, you know, he starts winning awards. He's, yeah. he's talking about his performances, you know, only after two films. And it was the sort of clips I used in the introduction. And and one of the only really interesting bits in that montage that I found that was um, sort of more character driven was the way that he's seeking validation from Amber. You know, when yeah, he's he wants to show Amber his house, the and things his that, he's, and his, that he's, he's finally got. His awful it's, paintings it's, that he's had done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think you could probably do a better job than that painting. It's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> bad, but maybe that should be the cover image for this week's. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Well, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what it turns up like. We will see. Yes, indeed. But, um, but yeah, that that was that was one real interesting thing. The other part is, is just that we're introduced to Jesse, yeah. who's another porn actress, uh, who will have again. Uh, not a significant role within the story, but she's important. Uh, yeah. And then we then we just come to the eighties. I mean, that is it, right? Yeah, we are yeah. we are done with the with the high, and now we're at the point where we've, yeah, we've got all that. It's great, all going to turn. We've got all that great fun stuff with inventing Brock Landers and Jack talking about how it's the best. Oh yeah, he's indeed. Ever done. It's, it's indeed. That, that, that is some good that. stuff, though, right? The names are great. Yeah, They're so good. <laughs> Chest Rock. I was trying. Is, I was is trying. The, to... Is the best thing. It's such a Simpsons. I was trying to come up with some funny names for us, but I just couldn't do it. Like it's it's difficult coming up with a with a you know an amazing name that really sparks. So uh, yeah, good on you, Dirk. It's yeah, and you can tell they they have fun with that sort of stuff. It's got a very kind of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place approach to oh yeah, being so authentic with your pastiche that it makes it much, much funnier. I've been in this place for 20 minutes just to get a seat. Are you alone? Yeah, just visiting L.A. Some people told me the food in here was really good. Good? It's not good. It's probably the best place to eat in all Los Angeles. It's excellent. I certainly hope so. I could die of starvation before I get something in my mouth. Still hungry? We leave our circus full of characters, still living the dream, but what awaits in 1980? Come and join us in part two of our review of Boogie Nights, here at the Rewind Movie Podcast. As always, if you like the episode, please rate, share, maybe even leave us a little review on whichever podcasting platform you're listening to it on. If you want to contact us directly, you can catch us on Twitter at Rewind Movie Cast. Look forward to hearing from you, and we'll see you in part two.